I wouldn't really start with Gladio. I mean, perhaps we should start with, uh, for example, the article that I have already summarized, which, okay, it's not talking about Gladio, but still, I think it's relevant to understand at least uh, what was happening in Italy at that time. Let me see. Okay, because we know uh, that, I mean, Italy is a pretty weird country. Uh, for those of you that are listening, uh, I am Italian. You can probably get it from my accent. So sorry for that anyway. Um, Italy is a weird country, meaning that a lot of weird things happened in Italy. It's a uh, border country, we may say also, because we know after the Second World War, um, some in a part, a relevant part of the Italian borders are with Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia itself is a particular type of, uh, let's say, communist country, because as I will say later, there is actually a divorce between Tito, so between Yugoslavia and Soviet Russia, that happens more or less in 1948, and actually contributes a lot to the Italian scenario of which we are talking about. Now, we all know the canonical history about Italy. Italy had a strong resistance movement during the Second World War that mainly started as a consequence of the armistice. The armistice in Italy was signed the 8th September of 1943 and was a result of various events happening in Italy, mainly the fact that uh, in, the, in July 25th, 1943, so a couple of months before, Mussolini had been basically arrested. That is, uh, the king uh, basically recognized that his uh, Mussolini's government, I mean, we can call it government, it was a dictatorship, but okay, let's assume it is a government, was failing. Failing because uh, in uh, July, in June 1943, the Americans, started to invade Sicily and south of Italy. So clearly Italy was in danger from this point of view. And also we know the effort on the, on, ongoing for the Second World War was not as planned by Mussolini. We had plenty of deaths, no relevant military conquests. I mean, the only thing we were able to achieve was part of the south of France and part of Greece, but only with the aid of German troops. I mean, our army was not uh, the best in the world. Probably our naval army was uh, definitely better than the land army, let's say. But still, we encountered a lot of losses and all this stuff. So Mussolini was basically um, sent to jail and forced to, um, you know, uh, how can I say, uh, he was forced to resign, exactly after a votation happening in the Grand Council of Fascism. That was a sort of cabinet, after all, of uh, the entire fascist regime in Italy. So what happens after this context is that Badoglio, who is a, a general in the army, becomes uh, uh, the prime minister. So he has a sort of government, again, still a government, that signs the armistice the 8th of September of 1943. This armistice basically divides Italy in two. That is, we have the south of Italy, which is more or less free, in the sense that it is occupied by the Americans and it has been freed 
by the fascist presence. The king himself will move to Brindisi, which is a city in south of Italy, in uh, Puglia, uh, to be more precise, in the region of Puglia. Uh, while the north remains in the hands not only of fascist in general, but also of Mussolini, because after Mussolini is in prison on the Gran Sasso, which is a mountain in the center of Italy, he is then freed by a sort of a military, um, military assault team of SS, uh, Otto Skorzeny, if I'm, I'm not... I'm not sure about how to pronounce this surname anyway, but Otto Skorzeny was one of the main figures involved. He was a sort of hero among the SS because of his extreme bravery. Um, Mussolini is basically appointed as leader of the so-called Italian Social Republic, uh, which is basically a, a Nazi fascist state basically that exists in the north of Italy with the support of Italy. So the resistance is mainly active in the center and north part of Italy, because this is where the real fighting is. Also because the Americans that are able to gradually move up in Italy get stuck at a point which is the so-called linea gotica, so the gothic line, basically a border between freed Italy and the uh, and the RSI, so the Repubblica Sociale Italiana, so the state led by Mussolini, and this line is extremely difficult to cross. And this is where the main fightings happen, and this, uh, uh, let's say, uh, horizontal border, horizontal line divided Italy into, is also the point that best represents the partisan resistance. Uh, I live close, very close, to where the Gothic line was so clearly, I feel a particular also emotional attachment to uh, this topic. I mean, consider that the, I live in a street which is dedicated to a partisan. He died in, um, at the end of 1944, so a couple, of, a couple uh, some months before the end of the conflict, and he was more or less my age. He was, I mean, I'm approaching 23, he was like 23 or 24. So. It's something tough if you think about it. So uh, what we said is that, okay, the resistance emerges. The resistance comes from uh, the population most of the time, the basic population. Of course, we have members of the army sometimes, those that, for example, uh, resist to being, uh, um, let's say, um, uh, drafted by the regular RSI army, some refuse to contribute, some become deserters, of course, but also members of the civil population actually decide to uh, emerge, also consider that most of them were doing a political activity during the fascist regime, and this political activity was clearly done in a clandestine way, in an illegal way. They were socialist, they were uh, uh, Catholics sometimes and most of the times, this is the interesting part, they were actually communists. So we don't have to forget that even though a lot of different forces actually contributed to the resistance movement, the vast majority, I would say, uh, uh, surely above 50%, but probably up to 60%, was made by Italian communists. Women and men, of course, this is also another important piece of information. Now, the events 
uh, as we know, go as follows. By the 25th of April of 1945, Italy is definitely freed. Generally, um, the, this date, which in Italy is known as the Liberation Date, coincides, if I remember correctly, with the day in which Milan is freed, also because Milan is uh, the most important city in North Italy, and it's also one um, of the cities much closer to the northern borders of Italy. The idea is that basically once you have freed it, uh, the rest of Italy, you, you give it for free, basically. I mean, it's done. Um, so uh, Italy is freed and uh, a government needs to be created. We know in a, by going from 1945 to 1948, a lot of things happened. We decide to transform the kingdom of Italy because Italy was still a kingdom even under the fascist regime. We decided to transform it in a republic. We do a referendum uh, and so re uh, republic against monarchy and republic wins uh, a 60-40 more or less. What is important to say about this referendum are two things. One that is uh, evident, crystal clear, the other one that is a rumor. So, I mean, I don't know how reliable that is, but I mean, we can say it just for the sake of having fun. The first evident thing is that if you look at the distribution of votes in regional terms, you see that um, generally those that are in the North are more favorable of the Republic for obvious reasons, because they were the ones more involved, let's say to some extent in the partisan resistance. If you look at the votes received by the monarchy, they are stronger in the South. In some regions in the South, you also see that monarchy in terms of preferences is above 50%. Of course, this is different and needs to be clarified about saying that, uh, oh, Southerners supported the monarchy and all of that. The, the story is much more complicated. We should consider that even though the South was mainly freed by the Americans, there were spontaneous resistance movements. For example, happening in specific cities. The cities of Naples, which is the, the biggest city in South Italy, was freed by its uh, citizens, who acted exactly as partisans did in the North. So um, they were, uh, some of them, communists, socialists, etc., etc. And they freed against uh, uh, the fascists. So it needs to be clarified that also resistance existed in the South. The war perhaps contributed to divide politically Italy a little bit, still because you see that after the war, the neo-fascist party, the MSI, the Italian Social Movement, or Movimento Sociale Italiano, if we say it in Italian, gained the majority of its votes in the South. But, uh, okay, that's the end of the story. The second thing about the referendum is that uh, someone claims, I don't know with what evidence, uh, that actually uh, the votation was, uh, there had been frauds ongoing. So someone uh, made these frauds in order for the Republic to prevail. So it was and rigged, basically, that there's a claim that the election was rigged? Yeah, exactly. The, there is this claim, again, I would say it's a rumor, uh, also because I don't know which type of evidence you can actually find about it. But anyway, uh, what we see is exactly that uh, some, some claim that, you know, someone made the Republic win. Of course, if this rumor comes from neo-monarchists, it's complete bullshit, obviously. It's complete BS. Uh, 
Uh, but again, I don't know. It's just a rumor. Something that uh, when you study, uh, you know, history in high school, someone always uh, points this out. You know, the professor perhaps says, ah, you know, someone had said that probably the, the election was rigged, the referendum was rigged. But anyway, doesn't really matter. The Republic wins. The next important step is, uh, well, the approval of our constitution that, I mean, it's important for Italians. We are sometimes uh, overindulgent, let's say, or too much um, showing, in a, let's say, an emotional contact relationship with this constitution, because sometimes we claim it's the best constitution in the world, which I mean, um, I don't really know, because also in, in the Constitution, clearly, if you read it, you see that it has been the, um, let's say, a compromise, of course, because uh, our Constitutional Assembly was mainly formed by those who won the resistance. I think that also some minority seats uh, were given also to not fascists, of course, but perhaps to some monarchists perhaps, but just, I mean, minority seats, just for, you know, let them show up. Uh, also because anyway, yeah, it should be said that among the resistance, uh, there were some monarchist members that saw Mussolini as a traitor, as someone who had uh, basically put dirt on the monarchy. For them, the monarchy was something noble. Wait a second, because Arturo wants to get out. Sorry. Yeah, no problem. Arturo, dove vai? Okay. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes, I mean, he, he wants to eat. So, uh, as I was saying, instead of the Constitutional Assembly, clearly there are some equilibria that needs to be respected. Uh, these equilibria are defined basically on uh, uh, what happened during the war. Because, of course, uh, so far, uh, there have been no elections in Italy, if I remember correctly. The first elections that are done in Italy after the referendum are the administrative ones at which, uh, in which the communist and the socialist party gain a lot of votes, which is why they will ally in 1948 for the political elections. So, uh, anyway, just to quote a brief episode about the Constitution, our Constitution states in Article 1 that uh, it, yeah, Italy is a republic founded on, uh, founded, sorry, not founded, founded on the concept of labor, founded on labor. This was a compromise because actually communists wanted the Constitution to say Italy is a republic founded on workers, which is I mean, a little bit different. The, the difference is subtle, but clearly everyone can get it. Using saying that it's founded on labor is something a little bit generic. I mean, it's clearly the result of a compromise. So what happens in Italy, of course, is that elections are approaching in 1948. And as we said, the, the Italian communist and the socialist one decide to form together a popular front they choose uh, uh, to use as a symbol in this popular front the face of Giuseppe Garibaldi. Giuseppe Garibaldi is uh, an hero of our, uh, uh, I don't know how to say it in English. Uh, we the call unification. It right, the unification of Italy. Yeah, exactly, which is the uh -huh. period in which Italy is basically unified, so 1861. 
Garibaldi, even though perhaps he's a little bit controversial as all the big characters in history, was seen as, um, was very appreciated by Italian communist and socialist because he was seen as a, revolution, as a revolutionary, because he helped um, to carry out the anti-colonial struggle in, um, in South America. Uh, if I remember correctly, his wife came from South America, Anita Garibaldi. I think that uh, even though the name sounds Italian, he was South American. But anyway, he was called the hero of the two worlds, exactly because he was a hero in South America and he was a hero in Italy. He also acted a little bit against uh, uh, the king, anyway, eh, during the unification process, which is why at a certain point, uh, he got shot in, a, in one of his legs, and he actually recovered in my city. So he was sent to recover in a military hospital in my city, La Spezia, so relevant. They choose this symbol, but dramatically, they lose the elections. They lose because they gain around 20%. The Democristian party, so the party representing the unity of all Catholics in Italy, gains the absolute majority. I think that uh, uh, 51, like 52. Nevertheless, uh, this um, the Christian Democratic Party, which is called Democrazia Cristiana, Christian Democracy in Italian, in English, I mean, translated in English, decides to rule, so to make a government, a parliamentary government, with other small parties, with other small centrist parties that are more or less around, uh, again, the Democrazia Cristiana. Uh, basically, uh, this choice is quite tactical in the sense that uh, in the light of a new republic that is emerging in Italy, Democrazia Cristiana decides that uh, it wouldn't be a, a good image to rule alone. The idea is simply to, okay, we enlarge the majority, we allow other parties to come in and support us, so we give, a, a, let's say, a, the image of the fact that as parties, we are anyway dividing the power in some way. So we are not ending up in a situation. I mean, the, the Democrazia Cristiana does not want people to believe that it is becoming the new fascist party, the new hegemonic party. Also because this was something believed uh, by other parties. Because uh, in Italy, we have to say, since there was no Norimberga in Italy, uh, and mo most of the fascists were free to act. Some of them even reconstituted a party. For example, we said the MSI. What is even more uh, interesting to say is the history of a weird Italian party called, the fr uh, called Fronte dell'Uomo Qualunque, which means front of the common man. Which is why in Italy sometimes uh, when we say we want to talk about populism, we talk about qualunquismo, which is something like common manism. Because this Fronte dell'Uomo Qualunque was a party founded by a journalist with some fascist sympathies anyway, that said that uh, once, okay, the fascist regime has been abolished by be afraid Italians because now the new dictatorship will be made by parties. So Fronte dell'Uomo Qualunque proposed itself as a party against the other parties. We are a movement, uh, we are a front, and, and also they were 
uh, a, a movement actually. Uh, they were a movement, which is, I mean, uh, one may say, what is the difference between be, being a movement and a party? Well, you can ask uh, to five stars. Five stars nowadays, uh, when they propose themselves, they exactly said more or less the same thing. We are not a party. That is, we are not institutional. It sounds like we are a movement. We come from uh, um, the low ground, let's say. You know, we come from the common people. This uh, uh, fronte dell'uomo qualunque is de facto considered by many a neo-fascist party, basically. So um, a party that basically wants to take power and then saying, ah, you know, we will just be, um, I don't know uh, how, common employees in the state because we don't want people to be afraid about the dictatorship of parties. They also sort of carry out the idea that states can be lead with neutrality. They use the word uh, ragioniere. Ragioniere in Italian is generally an employee with some legal and economic studies. Uh, the idea is that if you are a ragioniere inside the state, uh, you act in a technical way, sort of. I mean, it was a weird party. And uh, uh, it uh, basically collapsed after the elections. What is relevant to say is that one of the followers of this party, Antonio Pallante, who is still alive nowadays, in 1948 tried to shoot Togliatti. The, uh, so after the elections, which were lost, uh, yes, I think it was after the elections, if I remember correctly, uh, shoot Togliatti. Yes, it was definitely after the elections, I think. Shoot Togliatti, uh, it was not something terribly serious. Uh, Togliatti was able to survive and he lived until 1964. So he was able to still live uh, 16 years after this uh, event. Now, going back to our story, so the main story is, okay, but what happens in Italy at the time? Why between uh, 1945 and 1948, we don't see a revolution happen in Italy, an insurrection? Because uh, the partisans may have had the power to do so. Clearly, Italian partisans had weapons. Weapons that were taken from the fascist army that were gradually, let's say, conquered and captured, clearly, but also armies that were given by the Allies, by the Americans or by the English, uh, by the British people. In particular, a weapon that was really appreciated by the Italian partisans was the Sten, I think it's called. I think it was like a sort of uh, um, a chain gun, uh, you know, mitraglia, uh, chain gun. Yes, something like that. It's, it, it was automatic, I think. This was made the difference. So it was relatively easy to use and uh, it was very appreciated. Of course, once the war is finished, uh, authorities start to say, yeah, okay, partisans, but you are not regular soldiers after all, but the war is ended, you should give us back the weapons. Of course, this uh, did not happen. We have evidence that only a small fraction of weapons was uh, given back to its, let's say, legitimate owners. The vast majority of it disappeared in Italy. And uh, uh, the communists themselves had an interest in hiding these arms, these weapons. In Italy, we have the story that when the communists started to build their, uh, uh, let's say, uh, 
we, we call them sezioni, so sections around Italy. In every village, there was a section of the Communist Party, so a small house representing the Communist Party. Uh, inside, the, the, the weapons were buried in the walls of, the, of these houses. So, you know, in case of war, in case of insurrection, you can take the weapons and you destroy the walls, so you have the weapons. And uh, this and was clearly... Yeah? What was the, you taught me the word for that. Uh, I remember you told me the yeah, Italian the word, word for the it. The verb meaning uh, tear down the walls is uh, smurare, which is the opposite of murare. Because when uh -huh. you murare something, it means that you are putting uh, something behind the wall. You know, for example, a locker, no? um, a, a cavo. Cavo, murare in the wall. Of course, smurare, so putting an S in front of the verb, means doing the opposite. So taking something out of the wall, so destroying the wall and taking it back. And this is what was done with weapons, as an example. Now, of course, this, uh, this event actually never happened. We know that in Italy there has never been an insurrection, but anyway, there was the fear that something like that may have happened. In particular, this... Uh, uh, fear uh, was mainly coming, of course, from the, let's say, the Italian secret services and also by some different American reports that were written on the state of events in Italy. Because clearly there was uh, the uh, fear that such an event could happen. Because, again, partisans, at the end of the day, they were parts of the civil population but during the war, they all received some form of training. They know how to deal with a weapon. They had some guerrilla tactics a little bit. So perhaps they are not exactly like soldiers, but they are very similar to this condition. So they can create problems if they want, which is what happened, for example, in Milan after the war. Uh, some partisans continued to act. The so-called volante rossa, which I don't know how to translate uh, in the sense that rossa is red, but volante generally is how we call nowadays the car of the police. Volante rossa basically means red team that, uh, you know, roams around the city and if something is not good, uh, they, they do something. In, in a sort sense. Of, so sort of like vigilantes, I guess. Yeah, uh, yes, yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. They were sort of vigilante. And uh, other things also happened. I mean, this is a bit more uh, a conspiracy, and this is an episode generally referred by all the neo-fascists who really hate the partisans. But what happened in Emilia, perhaps it's relevant, so that during the last months of the war and after the end of the war, in Emilia, which is Emilia Romagna, is a region of center north Italy. And it was indeed a red region, so a region in which communists at the regional level always have the power. I mean, so far, uh, the president of, uh, this, uh, of the Emilia Romagna region is expression of the, let's say, center left party, the Italian Democratic Party, let's say. So the, the, the region never had a right-wing president. 
Now, in this, uh, uh, in particularly in Emilia, which is uh, the part of this region that is nearer to the mountains, Romania is the one on the shores, uh, communist partisans were extremely active. And uh, you can identify the so-called red triangle. So this portion of Emilia in which still after the war, partisans used to, you know, carry out their own justice by sometimes killing people that probably had relationships with the fascist regime. For example, they were collaborators, they were spies for the fascist party. Also at a really um, basic level, so also, I mean, informants uh, uh, of the standard population. Sometimes, for example, what happened that in some contest, priests were killed because uh, they were informants for uh, fascists. Sometimes this happened. But anyway, apart from inspecting this, which I mean, it's something uh, too controversial, let's focus again on what happens in Italy. Now, what happens in Italy is uh, the fact that at a certain point, um, this insurrection basically, as we know, is never done for a variety of reasons. First of all, we we already said something about the figure of Togliatti. Now, according to someone, uh, basically Togliatti is a sort of mythological figure who is, uh, let's say, always, a, a, how can I say, a moderate between uh, the Italian communist and the Soviet communist. Although this is not completely true, but the, the Vulgata, the Vox Populi around the Togliatti was that he was a man of compromise so he has always been able to keep things quiet. Although this is again, not uh, extremely true because Togliatti anyway had political intelligence. That's the point. It's not that he was a moderate, he had political intelligence. He knew when, where, when things could be made and when they couldn't. Inside the communist party, there is a double component. The one represented by Togliatti that uh, perhaps it's a little bit more moderate, let's say in this sense. And then we have the revolutionary part represented by Secchia. Secchia is for uh, revolution immediately. Secchia already imagines that if we do an insurrection in Italy, the Northern part of Italy will fall under the control of workers because of course uh, industries, factories are in the North of Italy. So North of Italy is full of workers. Perhaps in the center, there can be some allocation, some fights. The South clearly will remain uh, in the hands of uh, the legit, the so-called the existent state at the time or of the allies also because Sekia basically says that he does not believe that the vast majority of the population in South Italy will actually support this insurrection. But these are all speculations at the end of the day because nothing of this applies. Now, what is the position of Stalin? Well, Stalin is a little bit ambiguous on this in the sense that he wants to be the one dictating, clearly. Whatever happens in Italy must come from his orders. Togliatti and Secchia do not have the power to act independently of Stalin. Clearly, after the Second World War, uh, the equilibria is that Eastern Europe is uh, directly under the control of the Soviet Union, but all the communist parties that arise in Western Europe must follow as well the orders of Stalin. 
So this, uh, this is already part of the problem to some sense. These parties, for example, the Communist Party are important, definitely in Italy. Uh, the Italian Communist Party was the most important Communist Party in Western Europe, and I would say in the Western world in general, but nevertheless, it was never able to achieve power. So the problem was, how do we put these parties into uh, power? Now, before the elections already, uh, the, uh, the idea was that, uh, uh, okay, Stalin gives the orders. Now, the orders of Stalin are to see what happens in the sense that we have to respect the Yalta Agreement. So we have to respect uh, this division of the world. Now, the pivotal, the pivotal events here are two, the Greek civil war and the relationship with Yugoslavia. In Greece, the situation was definitely more advanced than in Italy from this point of view, because the Communist Party of Greece was extremely more belligerent. And at a certain point, they effectively decided to start a war against the, the installed government. Now, also here, the common uh, storiography on the topic tells us that uh, Soviet, the Soviet Union never intervened in the conflict, which is not true, because for uh, uh, Stalin, it was uh, a sort of experiment to some extent. No? And uh, in order to you know, make a difference, you have to participate in the experiment. So uh, we have actually private writings, for example, between Molotov and Stalin, in which Molotov, which was uh, the foreign minister at the time, reports that uh, the Greek communists are asking for specific kind of weapons, and the Soviet Union is delivering these weapons to the Greek communists. And Stalin is happy of this. Uh, what is the problem, of course, is that this war, for a variety of reasons, is lost by the Greek communists. At a certain point for the Soviet Union, it becomes evident that the Greek communists are going to lose. Also because the communist um, party in Greece was divided between two fronts, which uh, each of them had a, sort, had, had a leader. One was extremely belligerent, so in favor of continuing the war, the other one was a little bit more skeptical. Anyway, what happens? is that the Soviet Union at a certain point decides to, uh, to give up, basically. The civil war is lost in Greece. So uh, we have to simply uh, acknowledge the obvious. And this is where the divorce with Yugoslavia comes. Because Yugoslavia, on the other side, we know that the leader in Yugoslavia is Marshal Tito. Uh, Tito is actually in favor of continuing this war. Uh, Tito is a very movimentarian. No? Uh, so he's for conflict, he's for change. He thinks that the war can be still won to some extent. And also he is so belligerent that he actually plans weird invasions of Austria that was in the Western world at that time. Clearly Stalin does not accept that Tito is taking the initiative, first of all, and also he does not accept that uh, Tito has the interest to start a series of conflicts that for Stalin are completely uh, out of reality. So the divorce is, uh, exactly happens 
uh, in this situation. What is the problem for Italy of this uh, situation? The probability of an insurrection further decreases because now as a consequence of the divorce between Stalin and Tito, also the Italian Communist Party divorces from Tito. Clearly, that's obvious. Togliatti follows the orders of Stalin. I mean, it's no wonder that Stalin, along with Molotov and a few others, was, the, was again, among the only ones to survive the period of the purges, of the Stalinian purges, because uh, they were clever enough to follow Stalin orders when it was necessary or sort of advising him to change them. I mean, Togliatti was a, a very important element of the coming form, perhaps the most important, the most non-Soviet one. Non-Soviet, I mean the fact that he was of Italian nationality, even though, as we know, Togliatti actually received the Soviet citizenship at a certain point in his life, but nevertheless. Uh, you, so there is this divorce with Yugoslavia, which means that again, in case of insurrection in Italy, Yugoslavia cannot provide any help because of course uh, uh, we know that synergies uh, between Italian communist and Yugoslavian communist were existing clearly. Of course, in case of an insurrection in Italy, Yugoslavia would have tried to invade uh, clearly Northern Italy. So clearly this, uh, is an additional problem. Also, the failure of the Greek civil war is a proof that for Stalin, there is not a lot of, there are not a lot of things to do in the Mediterranean area. Uh, there is actually nothing to do. The only thing we can do is uh, uh, war, but with propaganda. So we fuel from uh, the Soviet Union, these communist parties with money, and we hope that one day they are able to gain power through the elections. And actually, as we know, uh, Stalin's attention moves to the north of Europe because for, for Stalin, again, the Mediterranean area is stuck in a series of equilibria that cannot be altered. Something can be done, uh, for example, in North Europe, uh, that is uh, around Berlin, which is why then uh, we have all the events, you know, Berlin Ovest, uh, West Berlin, East Berlin, etc. Of course, in Italy, after the failure, because it is actually a failure of the uh, Popular Front in the general elections of 1948, it is decided that at this point, uh, the, the insurrection is uh, I mean, completely impossible. There is no other uh, um, pra uh, practical way apart from uh, waiting and see. So this is a Stalin policy in Italy. Because again, Stalin now is more concerned about what is happening in Northern Europe, so in Germany, and also what is happening in Far East, because these are also the years of the Chinese Revolution. We know that, uh, I mean, uh, by having a more long-term perspective, relationship between the Soviet Union and the Popular Republic of China could have been better. Basically, we know that there were points in which uh, there was a lot of arguing between the two components. And so, okay, I, I would say that's more or less everything I had to say on this part. Yeah, well, I think the next thing to talk about is this provides all of the historical context for what happens in Italy before the years of lead. But can you go into briefly like how Gladio 
get set up by NATO? What is the process that they start going about to connect with okay. people who are going to be part of Gladio? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I say something uh, just to summarize it a little bit. Okay, as we know, Gladio is a so-called stay-behind operation, meaning that it is an organization which, however, does not exist from a legal point of view. We know the main vulnus when talking about Gladio is that we are talking of a paramilitary association with lots of volunteers in Italy that were spread in every position in society, but such an organization was not under the control of the parliament. Only a few people in very leadership positions, so apex members of the government and of the army, knew of this operation. Now, in Italy, this operation translates into this Gladio organization. Uh, in Italy, Gladio means a precise thing. Uh, in, in, in ancient times, generally during the Roman period, the Gladio was a short sword that was used by uh, Roman fighters, by, uh, yes, by Latin fighters. So also by gladiatori. Gladiatori, which were the ones fighting in the Colosseum, were sometimes using this gladio to fight between us, to fight between them. Now, the thing here one may notice is that you already see that already in the logo of gladio, there is a reactionary component. I mean, if you recall yourself to the Roman Empire, this, this, this is what fa fascism used to do. The symbol of fascism, which is fascio, it's exactly something that comes from the Roman Empire. The fascio was, uh, it was not really a weapon. It was an ax um, um, uh, wrapped with uh, pieces of wood, with sticks of wood that was used by magistrates, by judges to show their power. So it was a, a, an element very common in the Roman iconography. And it was simply reused later by fascism. And also Mussolini, when making the new Italian empire by conquering some colonies in Africa, so uh, the corner, the east corner of Africa, and where Libya has already, had already been conquered before fascism, was saying that we are remaking the Roman Empire, basically. So already Gladio, let's say is sort of recalling this uh, past. So you may say that is reactionary already for the starting point. Already, uh, even though, as Cossiga noted, the, um, the symbol, the international symbol of all these stay-behind operations that were created in Europe was actually a hole, not a gladio. Gladio was only the Italian version, let's say. I don't know the symbol in other countries, but the overall the international symbol was the symbol of the old, which, uh, I mean, to me, recalls uh, an intelligence operation, no? because the old, uh, also in the words of Hegel, what is the role of the old? The old comes at the end of the period and applies the philosophy of history. So he's able to uh, sort of uh, uh, make synthesis of a period that has already, uh, that has already been closed. No? Nottola di Minerva, we say in Italian. So the old of... Uh, uh, Minerva, which is the, the, the Greek goddess of intelligence, basically. Okay. Again, so again, notion of intelligence for the old. Now, uh, what is uh, 
definitely relevant to say about Gladio is that, sorry, Gladio, because it's Italian, so I will pronounce it in Italian. Gladio, we may say that emerges, uh, I mean, its necessity is multiple. If we believe that Gladio is a stay behind operation that has a mainly a defense purpose, we can say that it emerges because uh, it was well known, we have already said about this, that uh, after the Second World War, the Italian Communist Party was maintaining a paramilitary organization made by the partisans that participated in the conflict and of which most of them were actually in favor uh, to restart a new one, so a new call to the arms. Uh, now, there, there, there are a lot of reports of intelligent reports that try to estimate the paramilitary organization of the Italian Communist Party. So we can be more or less frightened by the numbers, uh, depending uh, if they are, you know, 300,000 and all of this stuff. But at the end of the day, one may say, well, okay, Gladio emerged um, exactly to as a, a counter as a counter defense from a potential communist uh, insurrection. That again, we know never happened. But again, the vulnus of this organization, the vulnus uh, in discussing about Gladio, Gladio, and this is a problem that in Italy emerged only in 1990, so at the end of the, uh, of the Cold War, was that this organization was out of the control of the parliament. In Italy, as in every parliamentary republic, uh, the, the main job in uh, you know, in organizing a state is done by the parliament and the government. The problem of, of Gladio is that only, again, some figures knew of its existence. For example, Cossiga, that we said is a longamanus, sort of, so a, per, a figure that uh, knew probably a lot of things uh, about what happened exactly in Italy during these years, was informed of Gladio, of Gladio, only in 1966. Probably, again, probably, certainly, this organization existed before. And in the words of Cossiga, the negotiations, the agreement behind this organization were carried out by Moro, mainly, and other members of the Democristian Party. Remember, for those who don't know, that Aldo Moro was one of the figures, of the main important figures of the uh, Democristian Party. And then he was assassinated in 1978 by the Red Brigades, but that's another story, I would say. He was killed for another reason, not for Gladius, because I mean, it was unknown. Still, according to Cossiga, uh, the um, managerial aspect of Gladio, because again, Gladio required a managerial effort, because it is, a, it is stay behind, so it is a secret. Not everyone can know of it, but still, Gladio wanted ears in every part of society. This means that we have to find people that are, you know, loyal to the cause, volunteers, basically, to some extent. So people that are, uh, belong to every part of society. Uh, according still to the reconstruction made by Cossiga, and I underline reconstruction made by Cossiga, because again, one may actually doubt this source to be reliable, the managerial aspects um, of Gladio would have been managed, so let's say uh, made by Enrico Mattei. 
Now, Enrico Mattei is another important historical figures. Uh, hundreds of books have been written on him. Here, we just say the basics about him. Enrico Mattei is a partisan. He's actually a sort of uh, partisan officer to some extent. And during the Italian resistance, he proves that he definitely has some managerial skills, real managerial skills, not uh, CEO skills. Here we are talking of real organizations. Yeah. Not like you would learn at a, a business school. Yeah, Enrico Mattei was not a business school man, I think. <laughs> he was a clever man. Uh -huh. Some may not appreciate what he did and others will, uh, but still uh, he was intelligent on this point of view. Enrico Mattei um, so was one of the most important members of the Italian resistance, in which, of course, he represented not the communist, but uh, the Democristian party, so the Democrazia Cristiana. Once um, we turn into a republic, he becomes president of any Ente Nazionale Hidrocarburi, so, uh, which is the, the national agency of fossil fuels. Uh, any was uh, basically a state-owned enterprise already existing before, um, uh, before the Italian Republic, if I remember correctly, uh, it was probably created in Italy under fascism, yes, and uh, uh, even more probably during the years of the Great Depression, probably, because it was a period in which, you know, since the industrial sector in Italy was declining as an effect of the Great Depression, the fascist regime nationalized a lot of enterprises. And I think that also um, any may have emerged in that period, but okay. I mean, perhaps cut this part. I mean, if, I'm, if I'm wrong, I'll tell you later if I'm wrong. So Enrico Mattei becomes president of ENI. And uh, the, the life of Enrico Mattei actually ends abruptly because he's killed in a plane accident. So the plane, the private jet, I think. Killed in, in a flows. plane accident in, in quotation yeah, marks. plane accident. Now here probably... I mean, um, I'm not extremely an expert of his life, so my speculations are very basic. But you know, the common uh, things that are said on the topic is that he was able with, uh, again, some maneuvers to move war against the uh, seven sisters. Yes, I, I think they are seven. Basically, the seven sisters were the seven main fossil fuel producers in the world. Moving war to this uh, cartel basically meant a lot, particularly not only in economic terms, but also in geopolitical terms. Because also remember that uh, Italy, as the central country of the Mediterranean, also had powerful relationships with Middle East countries and also North African countries. So here, a lot of interests overlap. It's also very difficult from a geopol geopolitical point of view to discuss all of them. It's very complex. Anyway, someone says that Enrico Mattei was taken out of the picture exactly because, uh, uh, again, he moved the war to the Seven Sisters. Now, how do we know of Gladio? Well, uh, uh, we cannot really say that someone discovered Gladio. 
because actually it was something, uh, the declaration of existence of Gladio was made by those who knew the existence of Gladio. In particular, I'm talking about Andreotti. Who is Andreotti? Well, Andreotti is another leader because uh, this party had many leaders also con in, um, contemporarily uh, of the Democristian party. Again, Andreotti represents the right wing of the Democristian party. The Democristian party, we can say it is a truly centrist party because the idea when making it after the Second World War was we want a party that speaks with the Vatican, first of all, because it represents the unity of all uh, Catholic citizens in Italy. And of course, uh, you can imagine how much power had Catholicism in Italy. I mean, the Pope is in Rome, not in Paris. So clearly this played a role. In this big picture, Andreotti, who was many times uh, Ministry uh, of Defense, uh, also of Internal Affairs, I think, and also of uh, foreign, yes. Uh, he was also, again, prime minister. He was uh, very close to become president of the Republic, but uh, things were changing too much at the time because of, you know, the end of the Cold War, of the Cold War and Cossiga was preferred to him, actually. Uh, and then another point is uh, uh, the fact that, uh, again, Andreotti is considered in Italy an extremely, I mean, intellectual, clever politician with a lot of dark sides. He was involved in a lot of stuff. And since uh, he died uh, around 10 years ago, more or less, uh, well, probably, um, I mean, most of his secrets are buried within. In uh, 1990, during uh, a declaration in uh, at the Chamber of Representatives, uh, Andreotti, who is at the time Prime Minister, if I remember correctly, um, declares the existence of Gladio. For a very simple reason, not because he has been forced to. Partially, there were some investigations, but still, uh, these investigations uh, could have been simply stopped by not allowing them to see the archives, because clearly the archives of Gladio, of Gladio were off limits for everyone. Nevertheless, Andreotti understands that there is no point anymore in keeping the existence of Gladio secret, for a very simple reason, because its purpose has ended. The Cold War has stopped. Soviet Russia does not exist anymore. The the probability of a communist insurrection was already terribly low um, after 1948 for what we said, basically, but still there were uh, problems. You wanted even to avoid the regular communist party to take power democratically. So clearly what happened in the elections of 1976, where the communist party gained a third of the votes uh, was a frightening signal for uh, you know, the geopolitical equilibria in it. So Andreotti reveals frankly that this, uh, uh, I say, institution, well, this state behind operation exists and now it's basically time to dismantle it again because its historical uh, purpose has ended. There is no further reason in still practicing it. Now, 
uh, at the time, again, investigations are carried out by some uh, Italian judges, and Andreotti basically allows them to use the archives of Gladio, again, uh, of Gladio. Again, there is no point in keeping this a secret, so uh, we can speak of it frankly now. Um, this was a sign among many others, and this is something also interesting to discuss, of how the political system was basically collapsing in Italy. Andreotti basically declared it because uh, he understood that uh, Gladio was one of the main things we had to get rid of, meaning that the system was declining, uh, the horizon for Italy was dramatic under every point of view in the sense that, uh, again, the Cold War ended. So, I mean, the Cold War in Italy coincided with a phase of, uh, you know, prosperity to some extent, also because, I mean, also the, Demo also, also the Democristian Party, I mean, they received clearly a lot of money by the Americans, there is no doubt about it. Most of their illegal funds coming from, come from the US, also because the Democristian Party was the main reference for uh, the US allies, so for the allies. But also, again, Andreotti understood that uh, everything would have changed in a couple of years. Uh, for example, the Communist Party, so a long, uh, uh, the long existing rival was, uh, was not existing anymore. I mean, in, in, uh, if I remember correctly, the, the step with which we moved from the Italian Communist Party to the Democratic Party of the Left, Partito Democratico della Sinistra, PDS, was exactly in 1991, so after a little bit the fall of the Soviet Union, if I remember correctly. But uh, the point here is that Andreotti saw that things were declining. Also with Mani Pulite, so the whole uh, season um, started starting in 1992 of political processes against the past political leaders and anyway members of the so-called managerial and ruling class in Italy, it was clear that the political system that exists and flourished in Italy in the last 50 years was declining. So it was time to get rid of the dirt under the carpet, basically. I think that this is what Andreotti understood at a certain point. Anyway, weird things would have continued to happen anyway, because still the interactions, for example, with mafia were still relevant. Consider, for example, what happened between 92 and 93, in, uh, sorry, 1992 and 1993 in Sicily, where two very well-known judges, Falcone and Borsellino, were killed by, uh, by mafia men in explosions, so uh, terrible explosions. Um, so still in Italy, there was still an ongoing shock on this phase. And again, when you sum up to this, the political earthquake that was happening at the time, you see that Italy was moving, which is why we say that we were moving from the first republic to the second republic. Although there was no relevant constitutional change, because this is generally how you name republics. In France, we are now at the fifth republic, I think, but because there have been changes in the constitution. In Italy, this is more a journalistic uh, political definition instead of a legal one. Because you can see clearly that in Italy, between 1989 and 1994, all the main characters, and I mean parties, in the political parliament changed dramatically. The, again, the Italian Communist Party became 
the Democratic Party of the left. So with an ambiguous identity, they were not anymore communists. They were not socialists in the Italian sense of the term, which was a negative sense. They were not social democrats. Weird things. The socialist party that uh, basically ruled in Italy, I mean, ruled, uh, particularly its leader, Craxi, was prime minister many times during the 80s, collapsed because all of its most important figures were basically found to have practiced, you know, illegal funding and all of this stuff. Craxi himself actually escaped from Italy. He lived as an exile in Amamet, which is in Tunisia, I think, until the end of his days. He never came back to Italy. As soon as he knew that investigations were starting on him, he decided to left Italy. Also because to leave Italy. Also, he was afraid of jail, uh, also because probably, well, he didn't want to spend his last days in jail, as probably uh, most of us, I mean, who does want to go to jail? And also because at the time uh, in jail, some of uh, the main um, figures, so let's say that were accused by the judges at the time, actually committed suicide. Here, probably there is no conspiracy behind, simply these people understood that this was the end of their lives and probably the, the conditions that they experienced in jail were so tough that uh, at a certain point they decided to took their life basically so to kill themselves Craxi didn't want to make a similar end also because uh, he was also in, i think that he already suffered at the time of diabetes and this is how he died actually he died of diabetes uh, of diabetes then Anyway, again, we see that in five years, parties collapse. The Christian Democratic Party splits into different of its souls. Uh, the Christian Democratic Party, as I said, had many, had many uh, souls inside. The one, the centrist one, the more right-wing one, the more left-wing represented by Moro and Demita. But anyway, they stayed together uh, through, you know, all the typical politics make of compromise balances and counterbalances. I mean, if you think about it in perspective, keeping together such a party, such different souls for 50 years uh, was probably a political masterpiece, which is why as uh, the First Republic starts to fall, the Christian Democratic Party force splits immediately. Uh, so there are immediately, well, uh, it's an ongoing process, but still uh, its consensus among the population was eroded dramatically. Because in the north, Liga Nord was emerging. So the party that we now know as uh, Lega per Salvini Premier, so the league, the league for Salvini as a prime minister, emerged at a time with really different purposes, with really different messages, but was able to erode a consistent part of the Catholic uh, uh, consensus that uh, the Democristian party had in, uh, in northern regions. And also, I mean, they were able to maintain their votes in the South, but in the, the South also see a rise of the neo-fascists that were now more politically legitimated because uh, there has always been in the First Republic a so-called convencio ad excludendum, which is a Latin formula to say that although the neo-fascist party, the MSI was in the parliament, there was an agreement tacit between all other parties in not allowing the MSI to take part in the government. 
This only happened in the First Republic once under Governo Tambroni, under the Tambroni government, which was a democristian government with the approval of the MSI. This government fell after a couple of months because there were disorders in Italy. Also, uh, at the same time, the neo-fascist party decided to make their national congress in Genoa. Genoa is a city north of Italy, which is a gold medal uh, for uh, resistance. So there were riots literally there. So the government collapsed in like a couple of months, you know, uh, like three months. So the neo-fascists under the newborn Second Republic were more legitimate. First of all, because they started to change their shape. The new secretary is, uh, oh, I'm totally getting out of the argument anyway. I'm not talking about Gladio now, sorry. No, no, it's perfectly fine to hear. Uh, okay, if, if you want, I, I continue, otherwise I stop. Well, actually, if you don't mind, uh, in the next little bit, because I, I may have to go soon, for okay. you know i definitely want to do an, another one after this because everything you're talking about is is incredibly interesting but if you don't mind doing a brief summary for next time of the main events of uh, of gladio like what are the main things that we should focus on you mentioned the kidnapping and and killing of moro other things okay. so like Ooh. what are the main policies yes. of another Gladio? thing that i can mention that perhaps it's uh, I mean, it's related to Gladio to some extent, but probably was not a plan organized by NATO, is the so-called Piano Solo, which is, uh, uh, I mean, generally, there is not a lot of discussion about it, but it's something that comes from our uh, security forces, from our carabinieri. Uh, we remember that in Italy, we have the police, but we also have carabinieri which perform uh, very similar functions to some extent. Now, uh, in 1964, uh, there is a reveal of a plan, uh, the solo plan, which tells you anyway how still some parts of the Italian leadership were afraid of a communist revolt. Because this solo plan consists in saying, if we have to repress communists, we take the main members of the trading unions, so of the trade unions of CGL. CGL was at the time the biggest trade union in Italy and was, uh, um, its political attachments were both the communist and the socialist part that uh, in the 60s were divided because the Popular Front of 1948, because of its success, didn't last very long. And also because in the 60s, uh, they started, the socialists started to participate actively in the governments with the Christian Democratic Party, while the communists were basically left outside of the government. They didn't want to take part in it. This solo plan tells us that in case of a communist revolution or anyway, a situation in which it is perceived that communists are too powerful, what we should do is to take, I mean, it's, it's okay, uh, quite weird because also, I mean, you see this in perspective 50, 60 years after, it's almost a laugh riot. But anyway, if you look at it in perspective, it makes you think of how weird things were in Italy. This solo plan stated that we take the main leaders of the trade unions, so of this CGL, we take 
the most, let's say again, important leaders of the Communist Party will deport them to Sardinia. And uh, so a little bit like Napoleon, they were going to try and do a Napoleon. Yeah, sort of. Uh, this looks also pretty similar, even if, uh, I mean, it's as tragic as the instrument used under fascism, which is the instrument of confino, which is, I don't know if I can translate it with confinement, meaning that if you are an anti-fascist living in Turin, we forced you to go to live very far from Turin. You go to live in center Italy, in South Italy, perhaps even uh, we can, I mean, com confinement most of the time means uh, meant imprisoning, imprisonment in some specific islands, for example, Ventotene. Uh, so this means, uh, since, uh, I mean, as, as humans, we are social beings, particularly if we are political, political beings, uh, we uh, we leave you in a place with no one else or in, in which you are also under some form of informal surveillance, so we are sure that you don't continue anymore with your political activity. This was very similar to this instrument of the solo plan. The solo plan was revealed, I think, by some journalists. In a way, there was an escape of news, so this we became aware of this plan in some way. Anyway, I mean, of course, it was never applied, but anyway, it tells you that still in 1964, uh, vertexes of the government and of our military forces, uh, anyway, were still concerned about it. What happens? We know that later, uh, the strategy of tension that starts in 1968 with the bomb in uh, Piazza Fontana, uh, which is a square in Milan in which you have uh, the Bank of Agriculture, a bomb was put inside this bank and it killed uh, um, several people. And it was a dramatic event um, in the middle of the First Republic because it was 24 years after the end of the uh, Second World War. And if you do 1969 plus uh, 24, uh, well, you get basically the end of the First Republic because you get 1993, which, uh, so it's a sort of pivotal event at the center of the First Republic. Then this event uh, inaugurates the strategy of tension, of course, but what happens after with the so-called uh, Golpe Borghese is even worse, perhaps. Now, of course, we don't know if there was a direct involvement of Gladio, although it is probable that there was a link, and I will later say why, uh, what is the, uh, the Golpe Borghese and who is Borghese? Now, Borghese in Italy, known as the Black Prince, was uh, a fundamental member, uh, let's say, of the fascist elite. He was uh, mainly a fighter. In particular, he was the, man, the, the leader of the so-called Decima Mass, which means 10th uh, Mass where mass is not M-A-S-S, but it's M-A-S, an acronym that in Italian refers to a particular unit, an elite unit of soldiers. These soldiers were naval soldiers. In Italy, we call them incursori, and this corp still exists, although with a different name, of course. I mean, now, if you say that you like the 10th mass, uh, it's apology of fascism in Italy, more or less, 
even though it's not completely true because it once right. happened that I saw someone in uh, one of the villages near my house wearing a T-shirt of the 10th mass, nothing happened to him. No one uh, threw a battle at him, although I would have seen it as legitimate. <laughs> so this guy was, you know, because they say, um, uh, but, you know, I like the military history. So that's why I like the Decima Mass, the 10th Mass. No, yeah, it's like it's those like, who collect yeah. uh, Nazi memorabilia. Right, Clearly, or, or Confederate. Them, really like yeah. it, others are Nazi. Right, yeah. and, and people who connect, yeah. collect the Confederate memorabilia and say exactly. they're military historians. Yeah, exactly. But and, it, uh, so did this Nuno, yeah? Yeah, I wanted to ask, he, he just to add, he also participated in the invasion of Ethiopia as well under Mussolini. Yes, ah, okay. Uh -huh. I didn't know that, but okay, it's completely understandable because again, he right. was a, 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 an important member of uh, the military forces. He was the leader of this 10th mass and after the armistice, he was recruiting in the military arbor in my hometown. So, I mean... A lot of things happen in my hometown. Now, Borghese, um, of course, after the uh, Second World War, is in contact with uh, the neo-fascist party. I think that uh, for a certain period of time, a very brief one, is also the honorary president of the party. Although I don't think he is never, he, he does never enter in the parliament. Anyway, uh, in uh, 1971, so at the beginning of the 70s, he tries a golpe. Now, this golpe in Italy sometimes sounds like a joke, also because uh, the main military <laughs> support of this golpe would have been the Forestal Guard, which... Uh, so, I mean, so like the, like the border, uh, the Forest Service, something like that? Yeah, like they the protect the woods. Service. Yeah, so the ones, it's like... The, the park service people basically trying exactly. to do a coup. Yeah, exactly. yeah, okay. Which now in Italy does not exist anymore because since a couple of years uh, ago, they are now part of Carabinieri. So now you have uh, forest Carabinieri, basically. Forest service Carabinieri, Carabinieri forestal. Now, this uh, um, group, let's say, uh, starts... Uh, I mean, the idea is uh, we start a golpe, somehow we are able to overthrow the government. Also consider that again, we are in a period of strategy of tension. So clearly the government has problems in terms of public order. I mean, the 68 was still ongoing, uh, strikes, uh, the bomb of 1979 and all its aftermath, the death of Pinelli, uh, the emergence of the first uh, groups, uh, let's say, of uh, communist armed groups like Lotta Continua, as an example, uh, who were the ones uh, probably killing uh, uh, Commissar Calabresi, which was accused of having caused or uh, at least not avoided the death of Pinelli, which was an anarchist held responsible of the bomb in Piazza, in Piazza Fontana. Of course, he was not the responsible. Probably the responsibles, uh, you can find them among the uh, the far right, not the uh, the far left, and not by anarchist, of course. Right, and just to go just to go for a brief second more into the Piazza Fontana bombing. So this is 1969. Yes. Uh, two bombs set off in in Milan and Rome, or three bombs, I suppose. And and so you're saying basically it's a it's a gladio operation for the most part. Well, 
I don't know if we can say this. I mean, the, it's difficult. And I mean, also the problem is that you probably have no evidence on this. What we can say anyway is that the strategy of tension, whoever tried it, and also whoever give, gave the logistic support to do it, uh, was with the intention of destabilizing a country that was not uh, already really stable. Because I mean, the 60s were a golden age for Italy, but we are out of the 60s now. We are in the 70s with an economic crisis approaching, stagflation and all of the rest, which produced additional problems in Italy. Economic problems, but still problems, I mean. We are Marxists, so we give importance to these problems. Then, of course, it depends how they are framed, of course. Uh, but anyway, the idea was we destabilize the government so we can, uh, you know, push for more authoritarian solutions. This was the idea. The Golpe Borghese probably places inside this uh, strategy because uh, it should have been, I mean, uh, it depends how you read it, as the sort of apex. I mean, it's, it's a Golpe. It's a way in which we say, okay, we get rid of the democratically elected government, we do something new. Now, the, it's not uh, actually correct to say that the golpe, the golpe fails, because the golpe actually never starts. Uh, it seems, and again, we don't know why, we can only speculate on it, that uh, just before it's uh, put into practice, uh, Borghese says out and says that he's not anymore available to carry out the operation, and the operation is immediately suspended, you know, uh, so, disrupted. So something came up, like he, he had a dentist appointment instead, and he, he wasn't able yeah, to... Yeah, uh, the main uh, theory that I, I have heard is that uh, Borghese, at a certain point, understood that the political referee, so, um, sorry, the re re referee, uh, the political figure that would have supported the Golpe uh, would not have been Borghese, but Andreotti. So basically Borghese felt as if he has been, you know, um, how can I say, uh, overcome by someone else. And so he said, well, if I have to do the Golpe for Andreotti, I won't do the Golpe. Which, and then Borghese basically escaped. Also because this is relevant to notice, this Golpe again happened in, uh, in Italy at the beginning of the 70s. I don't remember exactly the year, but uh, it only came to evidence to the general public uh, in uh, 1973, which was also the year of the Golpe in Chile. And this is wow. where the strategy yeah. of the Communist Party of the historical compromise started. We have yeah. to secure democracy in Italy because uh, we can we can become the new Chile. Well, well, this is an interesting note to think about the connection between the this worldwide uh, and particularly in Latin America, the Operation Condor that was doing a lot of these coups and supporting neo-fascist uh, yeah. far right, you know, like Pinochet in, in Chile. But I had never made the the connection that it was the exact same year and. Yeah, the connection in Italy that. was made because the discovery of the Golpe was the same year of the Golpe in Chile. So clearly, from a temporal point of view, they were unrelated. But still, I mean, in Italy, we saw uh, that there was, anyway, a, a similarity between the two.
in Chile, you had a, an overall fragile democracy anyway with a government democratically elected. In Italy, the same, because again, in, in 73, we are getting to the middle of the 70s. So problems are starting to rise in Italy. Uh, and so, uh, I mean, we are afraid of following the same steps of Chile, meaning we are afraid that someone makes an authoritarian, reactionary, uh, right-wing goal, which is uh, the, the, reason, the main reasoning on why the historical compromise, which was the idea of allowing the communist party in Italy to become a member of the government, started. Also because uh, then it was a cascade of events, because in 75, uh, there was a round of administrative elections, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, the, the Italian communists gained a lot of consent, a lot of consensus, so relevant. And also in 1976, we had an anticipated round of political elections because in Italy mandates last five years, the previous elections were in 1972. So 72 from 76, it's only four years. So the, the term was ended one year in advance. And in this, uh, elections, we see almost a triumph, not total, of course, but relevant, of the, uh, of the Communist Party. Again, with uh, Berlinguer saying that one Italian out of three votes communist. And he is indeed right, because uh, uh, 33-34% was the percentage gained by the Communist Party. Consider that since its foundation on the other side, the uh, Democristian party basically experienced a gradual collapse. So they, they had more than 50 in 1948, but in 1976, they had 38. Four points of difference with the communists, not, uh, not a lot, actually. The Dem Democristian party was actually afraid of this. And this is where the historical compromise effectively started to took place. We have photos of reunions and meetings and also uh, shake uh, hands shaking um, between uh, Moro and uh, Berlinguer. Berlinguer was the chairman of the Communist Party. Moro at the time was, uh, I don't know if it was also this, the chairman of the Democristian Party, but anyway, he was the only big personality in um, the Democristian Party that could have made such a deal because he was the more left oriented one, let's say. And so then we know things clearly completely escalated because again, strategy of tension continued. No? Remember in 1974, we have the episode of the Italicus, a bomb placed on a, on a, on a, on a train. Again, also quite relevant and dramatic. And then of course, as we approach clearly the 76, 77, Clearly, 77 in Italy, it's, uh, uh, let's say, the sequel of 1968 to some extent, no? Even though it is much more violent because we see the rise of uh, the Red Brigades, uh, again, of Lotta Continua, the PAC, uh, and all of this stuff. So, um, I mean, which created some problems in terms of public order. Generally, the, the what is considered among the many to be the final event of this season is the bomb placed in Bologna, 
uh, railway station in 1980. It is, uh, you know, with the beginning of the 80s, which were again a period of growth, you know, uh, Milano da Bere and all of this stuff. So, you know, the UP Milan and all of this stuff. It was also a period of, uh, let's say, uh, spread happiness also because the, the season of uh, left-wing terrorism was basically closing to some extent. Also because uh, among the so, many things, yeah. So you, you mentioned the yuppies of Milan, so you had like uh, Italian Patrick Bateman. Uh, yeah, definitely. This period of time. Uh, I think I told you about this. In Italy, it is very famous, the expression Milano da bere, which means Milan to drink because there was a famous TV ad of a, an Italian liquor, Liquore Ramazzotti, you can find the ad still on YouTube, that basically presents by using as a soundtrack the wonderful Birdland by Weather Report, which is a jazz fusion gem, let's say, nice, nice piece, I like it, of course, presents uh, the, a city like Milan that is uh, never sleeping, full of activity, full of white collars and all of this stuff. A city that is extremely active, a city that is the closest equivalent you can find in Italy of uh, a financial capital. I mean, Milan was the financial capital, was still is the financial capital of Italy. So, Which, which is why you hate Milan. So much. Yeah, to some extent, also because this idea of Milano da Bere never really expired in Milan. Milan had some periods of crisis, particularly uh, the first decade of the year 2000s, where I don't think were great years for Milan. Milan started to emerge again with the Expo. Uh, I don't remember exactly the year. Yeah, anyway, the Expo in Milan contributed to renew the image of Milan abroad. Now it's an expanding city. It is stealing literally people from Turin. Turin is another industrial city in Northern Italy, but it's pretty close to Milan. They are in different regions, but I mean, with a, with a nice speed train, it takes 45 minutes to go from Turin to uh, Milan. And lots of things have been stolen uh, from Turin uh, by Milan, for example, the um, a book festival, a relevant book festival, and all of other things. Tur Turin is declining in population, actually, so uh, it's an ongoing crisis. So the 80s in Italy were the decade of Milan for different reasons, also because, again, Milan was the financial capital. And also because the party that was emerging at the time was the socialist party but very different from the Socialist Party that we knew in the 50s, in the 60s, that was as left-leaning as the Communist Party, more or less. But the leadership was completely changed because since 1976, the leader of the party, yeah, I think, it, yeah, it's 1976, is Craxi, Bettino Craxi. Craxi comes from Milan, yes, but he's, I mean, he's a rampant young man to some extent. He represents, you know, the, the 80s way to socialism. I wouldn't say that he's the equivalent of Tony Blair in Italy. Uh, it's, it was, this would be a misconception. But anyway, Craxi tried to remodernate a lot the party and also making it more appealing also for professional figures. 
the, the mayor of Milan for uh, several terms was basically a member of the Socialist Party. And Milan was the center of power of this party. A party that emerged, but that, be careful, was never extremely powerful. Also because in Italy, with the proportional electo electoral system, electoral system that lasted until the end of the First Republic, you didn't really need 50% to rule. You can be, um, in Italy we use the expression, the needle of the balance. I don't know if you have an equivalent in America, meaning that if you have even a small percentage of votes, and they think that the socialists never went above uh, 15, uh, still you were able to participate in the government, to have some ministries, perhaps even to become a prime minister, along right. with, of course, other parties, clearly the Democristian party, which was a necessary presence, of course. Right, you can, you, I guess we would, we would, say something like a, a kingmaker you can like decide who the exactly king will be. yeah exactly it was definitely a kingmaker you're right i was reading a book in these last days exactly about what happened in italy between 1989 and 1994 from a let's say political main sort of mainstream point of view and yes sometimes they exactly use the expression kingmaker the author uses this expression to refer to craxi and his party craxi became prime minister first in 1983 and uh, his first government was one of the longer lasting governments in Italy because it lasted almost four years, which is a, which is a record in Italy. Which because is it, really long in Italy, yeah. yeah. Because even if terms are five years, you never had a government that lasts five years. I think that the, re, the, I don't remember now if the absolute record is the Craxi one or a Berlusconi government. Because when Berlusconi won the elections in 2001, the mandate was 2001, 2007, 2006, sorry. He was able to rule between the, continuously between these five years, but in the last year he had to do a so-called rimpasto, a reshaking of the government. But the government was the same from 2001 to 2005. So still uh, it's one of the longest ever uh, governments that we had in Italy, but because again in Italy it's not important uh, what is the government, because at the end of the day the government is made by the same parties. The problem is that uh, for events like uh, uh, local elections, uh, administrative elections, or geopolitical balances, uh, continuously uh, they need some time to you know disrupt the previous government and make a new one by adjusting some elements for example a ministry that was previously in the hands of the socialist party now is in the end of the democristian one etc but the, the government in its essence remains the same which is why we use the expression uh, continuity uh, within discontinuity discontinuity is formal so Governments change because you see their names changing, but you still have continuity. The underground, the essence remains the same. Yeah, I mean, okay. Everything you said is a very interesting overview of, of Gladio. I wanted to talk about uh, the American role or the NATO role in the whole thing. I mean, I, I remember from things my dad has told me growing up, um, you know, growing up in, in Vicenza, he, his father was in the American military. And so he grew up near the, 
American uh, uh, base there in Vicenza. But to what extent was the American military really like still occupying Italy after World War II? And how did they use that state of occupation to continue using NATO to do Gladio, basically? Well, clearly, uh, the Americans, once Italy was freed, they maintained some bases. You have a lot of them, the one in Vicenza, so Aviano, uh, the one, uh, there is also one near Pisa, which is Camp Derby, and a lot of others. Um, and also there was a clearly, obviously for military reasons, a very strict relationship clearly between the military corps in Italy and the ones in the US, obviously. Uh, but still nowadays, this is ongoing, again, obviously. I know a lot of uh, friends of mine that have their parents, uh, their father most of the time in the military, and some of them uh, actually, uh, either they were literally born in the US because their father was working there, or for some period of time, their father was located again in the US, working like in Washington, all these uh, bureaucratic roles. I would say, I mean, probably at the time was different. And it's a time I didn't live, so I really don't have the experience of it, but uh, overall this occupation has always been seen in Italy, I would say as soft occupation. In some cases, even appreciated, because consider that a lot of, uh, this is a musical reference, but I mean, it still tells you a lot of things socially. Um, if you ask to a lot of Italian artists, that, for example, started their activity in the 50s or in the 60s, they will always tell you, some of them at least, that they, uh, their love with music started with the fact that either they lived near an American basis or they were able to catch on the radio frequencies the radio uh, for the military soldiers. And so they were able to listen to music that in Italy was not available at the time. Rock and roll, blues, that's it. Also because at the beginning imported vinyls were difficult to obtain, which is why you have artists in Italy that literally made their success in Italy by uh, simply redoing uh, American or English songs, mostly American. You redo them as covers, Perhaps you, okay, you translate the test, or sometimes you may even change it completely, but then the melody remains the same. So well, I, I know, a, yeah, yeah, I was just gonna say, I know that how important the American radio was, but my uh, grandfather on my dad's side was the one, he, he in the American military was in the Army Radio Corps, and he was doing the more of like sports announcement like he, yeah. would, he would narrate for uh, sports games, but still the radio for the American military was listened to by Italian people as well. So yeah. it was very prominent. Yes, 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 yes. Also because uh, in Italy after the second world war, so with the encounter with the American soldiers, a, I would say consistent part of the population had a fascination for uh, English speaking people. And in particular for the Americans, you have a lot of films, a lot of songs of the 50s focalizing exactly on this. For example, you have the famous song, a Napolitan song, Tu vuoi fare l'americano, which is you want to 
behave like an American. That is the story of this uh, guy uh, living in Naples, uh, behaving and wearing clothes like an American. Uh, of course, in this song, he is mocked uh, because, uh, I mean, he, he looks like an idiot, okay? Because, for example, there is a sea, he, he likes to drink whiskey and soda, even though it hurts his stomach after. Or another nice thing is that when he's talking with a girl under the moon, instead of saying ti amo, uh, which is I love you in Italian, says directly I love you in English. So, and the girl does not even understand. So, I mean, you have ruined a magical moment. And also you have the, the famous movie Un Americano a Roma, An American in Rome by Sordi, in which again, he's a young guy fascinated by the Americans wearing baseball caps, jeans, uh, trying to speak some English, even though he's not able to do so. Uh, so, I mean, it also, it's quite comical, of course. But yes, there was this type of fascination also because generally, I would say the American soldiers were preferred to the English ones on average by the population. Also because we said at the end of the war, uh, the Americans actually appreciated the area of revolution in Italy. Revolution meaning that we were shifting from a monarchy to a republic, while the English ones would have liked to maintain the republic. Because they, wouldn't, they didn't want order to change too much in Italy. Also because they understood that Italy at the end of the day is a peninsula, it's a bridge in the middle of the Mediterranean. So, I mean, it's a crucial point. Uh, if I remember, I don't remember if it was related to World War II, but uh, I remember that the English army for a while uh, wanted to do something like in Sicily, like transforming it into a military base or something like that. I mean, something completely crazy. While Americans, again, were a little bit more uh, preferred, let's say, by the population. And uh, this... Um, the, the fact that they have been appreciated also results in the fact that, for example, you still see nowadays uh, people that were born in the late 40s or in the first 50s with English names, sometimes uh, misspelled. Uh, I have uh, um, a friend of mine whose aunt is named Yames because uh, when he was born, his mother wanted to call him James. <laughs> But at the, you know, when you go to register someone's name, uh, they didn't know how to write it, uh -huh. and they misspelled the J for an I. Wow. Because in Italy, we used to call J uh, Ilunga. Oh, uh -huh. Ilunga is the Y. Okay, so this man is not called James, but Yames. Wow, that's hilarious. Which, I mean, sounds like, uh, I don't know... Uh, completely deranged thing. I mean, it's totally <laughs> mental. And you have a lot of cases of this uh -huh. stuff. Of course, clearly, there were oppositions because, of course, communists or those that are against this occupation, those that are against the, um, let's say, the, the, also the Marshall Plan that, again, happened in '47, and it's uh, the main reason why the country turned blue instead of red, uh, basically, of course, uh, this occupation was hostile 
for communist, but also for uh, the extreme right wing. I mean, also the, the neo-fascist like, uh, uh, again, the MSI did not like uh, the presence of the Americans, also because for them, it was a continuous renewal of the fact that they have lost the war. That's it, uh, nothing more. And uh, we still pay nowadays uh, this sort of dominance. For example, in military terms, uh, as we know, Italians uh, do not have nuclear weapons. We cannot have that uh, because, uh, okay, well, I mean, we are under NATO, so we are protected anyway, uh, but we do not have our own um, nuclear weapons as Germany. I assume that also Germany doesn't have nuclear weapons, while France, uh, they have nuclear weapons. As an example. Also a consistent arsenal, which is one of the main problems when discussing, oh, we should do a European army, we should unify national European armies, uh, is, uh, oh, okay, but what you do with the nuclear weapons? Some states cannot own them, technically. Another thing that we cannot have are uh, uh, carriers, so... Um, you know, big ships, I, I, you call Air, them. Aircraft carriers. Yeah. Air, aircraft carriers. We cannot have them. We can have helicopter carriers that are a little bit smaller. It's, it's weird. And uh, so another thing that I wanted to say is that, okay, notice that uh, here we see anyway a convergence, even though I don't believe in the horseshoe theory, of course, we see a convergence between extreme left and extreme right on this opinion, because both are against clearly this military occupation for different reasons, of course. Uh, the communists, because they prefer looking at the Soviet Union, the uh, fascists, of course, do not appreciate neither the US nor the Soviet Union, but they want to restore, you know, full sovereignty, independence, etc., etc. Uh, another important thing, okay, uh, ah, is that uh, anyway, throughout the history, both parties, so both the communist party and the fascist party, at a certain point, will claim that they prefer more to be philo-Atlantic, so more to be philo-US than uh, being uh, Soviet, uh, philo-Soviet for the communist, or let's say independent sovereign for the fascist. This happened in uh, different occasions, particularly for the communist party. We know that uh, under the, when Berlinguer was chairman, probably Berlinguer predicted anyway that, uh, literally used this expression, that uh, the revolution of October has ended its uh, uh, progress, let's say, so its uh, process. So it, the, the effect of the revolution, of the, of the October Revolution for Berlinguer were stuck at a dead end, which is why probably when he was in Bulgaria, they tried to kill him. And he also said that he believed to be more secure under the umbrella of NATO. I mean, probably the theory is that although I don't think Berlinguer overall uh, can be appreciated from a lot of point of view of views, but I don't think that after the fall of the uh, historical compromise, he was not able anymore uh, to, you know, have a clear strategy. He had some fixed points like the moral question, uh, the moral issue, sorry, more than the moral question, the moral issue, but apart from that, um, 
he lost a little bit the compass because uh, times were difficult. Also, one may say he was foreseeing the fall of the Soviet bloc, or at least he was seeing the Soviet bloc turning into something that was not anymore communist and not uh, um, something that was anymore producing, uh, you know, innovation and progress. One may say also this thing, which is why the next big tactic of uh, uh, Berlinguer was the so-called Eurocommunism. So instead of uh, small, because they were starting to become small, European, Western European communist parties that have to uh, respect what the Soviet communist party says, let's make a federation of our own. For example, the main parties involved here were the communists, were the French communists, so the PCF, uh, the PCE, so the uh, party in Spain and also in Portugal, also considering that Spain and Portugal at the time were newborn democracies because they, were, they had revolted against Salazar and Franco and they were uh, generally left-leaning, I would say. But anyway, again, then the Euro communism failed uh, simply because the parties involved were, were not powerful. I mean, the most powerful was the Communist Party, which never achieved power in, uh, at the government. Then they had the regional power in some regions. So, and yeah. can you, I think the next topic, I, I think we should go more into the Communist Party itself, talk about uh, post-World War II, what the Communist Party was, who was in charge, and you know what its main principles were, what its activities were. So if you want to give maybe like a brief run through of the Communist Party after World War II. Okay. So as, I, as we said before, basically Togliatti becomes chairman of the party. The party already undertakes uh, a transformation that is relevant at least to mention. Books have been written on this, uh, but I will simply mention it. Before the resistance, so because the Communist Party was founded in 1921, it basically it, it consisted in uh, an exit from the Socialist Party. If we go even backwards, the Socialist Party was founded in 1892. So still we are Kingdom of Italy. So the old liberal uh, republic where with liberal, I do not intend it in the American sense, but in the European sense. So, a re a, well, not really a republic, I would say liberal monarchy, sorry, uh, in which liberal means that only elites can vote. This is uh, liberalism in Italy. At that time, you do politics, in, uh, we call them salotti, in dining rooms, uh, in uh, halls, basically, because uh, only a small part of the population has um, voting rights. In the parliament, mainly you have the so-called sinistra storica, the historical left, liberals like the Whigs in England, more or less, and then you have destra storica, so the historical right that represents, uh, you know, conservatives, nationalists, and all this stuff. The Socialist Party that is founded in 1892 is a great change in the game. At first, uh, the Socialists gradually substitute 
the main ideology at the time that was common to farmers and uh, workers, which was uh, anarchism. They are gradually able to substitute it. They get involved in the parliament, although they are actually never able to gain the government before the uh, Second World War, before fascism, of course, if we want. Even though one of its most important uh, leaders, Turati, who is considered the, uh, so the, the embodiment of uh, what does it mean to be a socialist and a reform, and uh, yeah, you mean a reformer, no? Yes, okay. He was the embodiment of socialism and reformism at the same time. He had some contacts with Giolitti, who was prime minister in Italy many times uh, before uh, the advent of fascism. He was the main political figure in Italy after Cavour, which was the one that unified Italy politically. And uh, uh, Giolitti wanted, even though Giolitti was a centrist, he wanted Turati to be part in the government in order to you know, enlarge its consensus, also because uh, now we are getting in the 20th century and suffrage was gradually enlarged finally to all men. Women could only vote after the Second World War. Even though, as a note, this is nice to say, vote to women was given technically under fascism. Women uh, could vote in fascism to um, local elections. The problem was that local elections were suspended in Italy under fascism because mayors were nominated directly by central authorities. So women had no physical possibility to vote under fascism, although they were technically allowed to. I mean, this is something that, I mean, it's, it's terrible. I mean, it's, um, it's literally mocking people. You know, when you use law to mock people. So uh, the next step is, okay, we arrive at the Congress of Livorno. Livorno is uh, another city in Tuscany. Tuscany will become another red region, and uh, it's a very left-leaning uh, city. No wonder that the Socialist Party has decided to do there its uh, Congress, its uh, year con yearly Congress. And this Congress participate some members of the Socialist Party at the time that, however, declare that they want to fund, to fa uh, to, yeah, to fund, uh, to develop a new party the Communist Party of Italy, not the difference. Because previously, I always talked about Italian Communist Party. Now it's a Communist Party of Italy. It's also written differently. This one is PCD, the other one is PC. There is a difference. This party is, of course, minoritarian with respect to the socialist one. Uh, the socialists, uh, I mean, there are some... Uh, um, let's say, proof, uh, proofs, uh, tentatives to recut, to, sorry, uh, re, uh, remelt this cut between the two sides, but, uh, I mean, it is in the end impossible. The main figures at the time inside the Communist Party are clearly Gramsci, obvious, I mean, Gramsci is the communist intellectual in Italy, and it's probably one of the best known Italian intellectuals in the world, of the, of the 20th century. Um, and then also Togliatti, who is a, a close friend of uh, Gramsci, we may say. Then we also have others 
for example, uh, uh, Bordiga, but I mean, Bordiga, it's much more uh, controversial, let's say, as a figure, Amadeo Bordiga. He's later, basically, he's, he sort of suffered of a so-called, let's say, Dannazio Memoria. He was uh, uh, gradually, let's say, exiled by the Communist Party. Now, the Communist Party, this Communist Party, which is, again, PCD, so Communist Party of Italy, takes part to the elections, again, results are overall really poor. With the advent of fascism, we know fascism comes to power in 1922 with the march on Rome, which is not a push like or a golpe like in Italy, it is, it is actually proof of strength. Strength, to some extent strength, because when we have this march on Rome, Mussolini uh, is not in Rome. Mussolini is Milan, is in Milan. He's listening to the radio uh, about what happens in Rome because he knows that in case the king does not appreciate this march, uh, Mussolini is already ready, uh, he's already ready, sorry, I forgot that game on words, the play on words, to uh, escape uh, probably in Switzerland, I mean, uh, not being arrested. Anyway, the march on Rome is successful because the king decides to give the mandate to form a government exactly to Mussolini, which at the time he was already present in parliament, but he was, of course, in a minoritarian position. Remember also what happens before the march on Rome and before the split between the Socialist and the Communist Party. We have in Italy two years, 1919 and 1920, which are the so-called, uh, it's called Biennio Rosso, which means uh, two years uh, red. In this period, we have as an aftermath of the uh, First World War, an overall um, poverty is, let's say, widespread in Italy. Italy as an industrial force was relatively weak. It was a late comer in the industrialization. It had political problems because it was not unified until 1861, et cetera, et cetera. So we were extremely weakened by the war effort. The war effort that of course, well, of course, that unfortunately did not produce the results that we were expecting. Uh, also in terms of uh, territories that we conquered, which is why generally we say that this, is, this uh, victory was mutilated. So some parts of it were effectively missing. At the Treaty of Versailles, we were mistreated by others, let's see. This, uh, in this Biennio Rosso, what happens is a series of strikes, basically. Uh, strikes that are supported by the Socialist Party, in particular by the more maximalist ones. So the ones that are more close to the trade unions, the one that sort of advocate for a type of revolutionary change. This Biennio Rosso risks to be a success in the sense that uh, we have a middle class that if it ever existed in Italy at the time, it was clearly declining because of mass spread poverty under the First World War. And we have a working class that is rebelling. The, let's say, uh, communist interpretation of this period is that Biennio Rosso failed, and this is evident, but failed because, uh, and fascism emerged as a consequence, because someone understood that if uh, this uh, declining middle class 
and this working class would have been uh, that if they had been able to find an agreement uh, on, 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 on political power, of course, then things would have escalated in an unpredictable way. So fascism was introduced in the game as the armed um, end of uh, the Italian liberal of the Italian liberal monarchy of Italian capitalism, because of course we do not have to forget that uh, the fascist regime uh, and Mussolini, even before the fascist regime was approved, um, was approved, was sorry, put into practice, uh, was financed uh, consistently by industrial powers. Also because at the beginning, the so-called black, uh, um, black squads that were an informal militia, of course, illegal, were used not to show strength and how fascism wanted to help Italians, they were actually forced to, to assault sections of cooperatives and of the Socialist Party. So in this picture, we then arrive to the period of clandestinity, meaning that when the um, communist party, when, sorry, when the fascist party he basically proclaims the regime because the regime does not start really at 22. It starts between 25 and 26 with the so-called um, Legi Fascistissime that it can be translated as really fascist laws. Basically, Mussolini used a series of, of expedients to restrict, you know, uh, personal freedom, etc., basically by putting up a dictatorship through a series of rules. Also because uh, someone in those tried to shoot at him. So also in the light of this security that was missing, he was able to make these rules. Now, most of the parties, even for example, the Popular Party, so the father of the Democristian Party, basically uh, have to go uh, in clandestinity, sort of, because the only party recognized is the National Fascist and then the resistance started. Now, those that are in the Communist Party, so the volunteers, are extremely tough, meaning that they are moved by big ideas, by big energy also, and so they carry out clandestine activities that are relevant. Some of them, of course, have uh, relationships with Russia, of course, Soviet Russia, that at the time was clearly the point of reference, and some of them also then participate before the first war, before the Second World War, to the Spanish Civil War. There is a famous example near where I live, uh, in Sarzana. Again, a village which is ten minutes far from where I live. The, fi the figure of Ugo Muccino, Ugo, um, Ugo Bu no, Muccini, sorry, yes, Ugo Muccini, is uh, um, extremely famous. Now, Ugo Muccini. Um, was, uh, uh, I mean, a, a, a normal worker. I think that he was uh, like working a sort of factory, you know, small factory. He was a sort of artisan, but of course he was extremely involved in the Communist Party. And uh, for him, good things were prospected because uh, he should have been allowed to go to Soviet Russia to study, to become a cadre of the party. So a prominent figure. He decided, however, to take part in the Spanish Civil War and he never came back. So he died then. And when 
um, the uh, partisans established their local brigades in this area, they dedicated it to this, uh, to this communist. Um, with the resistance, also because of this clandestine activity ongoing, the relationship between the socialist and the communist party actually inverts, because clearly uh, before the resistance, the socialist party was the dominating one. It was the oldest, the older party between the two, the one also more eradicated in society because he, he was present in several regions since again, 1892. Um, the communist party was able to emerge again during the resistance uh, because of its uh, coordination, its uh, organization. Uh, Togliatti and all the others that took part in the Comitato di Liberazione Nazionale, so the Committee of National Liberation, were trained. Also because uh, during these years, again, they had a relationship with uh, uh, the Soviet Russia. They, they received uh, training, uh, also political, which is why, I mean, Togliatti was a master in the compromise, the change of Salerno, which was one of the constitutive phases of the Italian resistance, the one in which we said the first enemy are the fascists. So also the monarchy should allow with the partisans because the first enemies to defeat are the fascists. Then we will think about what to do with the monarchy later. And this is exactly what happened is exactly a result of uh, Togliatti, let's say diplomatic ability, which is uh, probably uncomparable. Once uh, at the end of the war, clearly uh, the communist party takes part in writing the Italian constitution and takes part in the first Italian government, in the first Italian governments, he is then uh, basically taken out of the government in 1947 because the Gasperi, so the Democristian prime minister at the time, decides that we have to uh, adhere, so receive the Marshall Plan, and so communists should be taken out of power, taken out of the government. We have the elections in 1948, we, which we have this alliance with the Socialist Party led by many at the time. Um, anyway, the, the election is a sort of failure because we only get 20% of, uh, of the votes. Also because the electoral campaign was extremely strong on this. Uh, for example, the um, Democristian party referred many times to a clearly red scare topos. So he said many times to the mother, to the Italian mothers, that the red scare, the red uh, monster, will take their children and will eat them alive. Uh, so the, the, poster, uh, the, uh, the poster campaigns for uh, that election was extremely tough from this point of view. They also made uh, a very nice poster in which uh, they drew the symbol of the Front Popular, of the Popular Front, so the face of Garibaldi, but if you turn it upside down, the face of Garibaldi becomes the face of Stalin. So this was like to say, ah, you think you are voting for patriots, you are voting for Italians. No, you are voting for people that just want the country to fall under Soviet control. Under Togliatti, anyway, the party is able to gain 
a consistent amount of votes uh, because by the death of Togliatti, who dies in 1964, uh, the Communist Party amounts for 20, 25% of votes at the general election. So it is a relevant force, still at the opposition, of course, but relevant, who is nevertheless able to express power, positions of power in some uh, uh, regions. Um, particularly in uh, the um, center regions of Italy, basically, where the cooperative system is ongoing and uh, where you can identify the so-called red regions, so Emilia-Romagna, Tuscany, uh, Umbria, and if you want, uh, I mean, Liguria, the region in which I live, not really, uh, but the, the, the province of La Spezia, to some extent, was a communist one. Then, after the death of uh, Togliatti, Togliatti indicates as uh, Dolphin, let's say, uh, so as a descendant to his role, Berlinguer, even though Berlinguer already becomes a secretary, if I'm correct, in 1972. Between uh, the death of uh, Togliatti and the appointments of Berlinguer, we have the, um, let's say, uh, Longo becomes a chairman. Longo is another important figure in the uh, Communist Party. He was closer to Secchia position, I think, instead of Togliatti once. But although, I mean, he was old at the time, so he basically continued more or less Togliatti's path. Also because Togliatti elaborated the so-called famous Italian way of socialism, the Italian way towards socialism which is, of course, a very complex, let's say, political philosophy that tries to keep together the fact that we are communist, so we want communism in Italy, but nevertheless, we also wrote the constitution. It's a sort of democratic socialism, to some extent, if we want. We want, our aim is to reach communism, so workers in power, but we want to do it by living inside the constitutional environment that we helped to shape. So we want to win the elections, basically. We want to establish a form of socialism that respects um, clearly uh, the constitution, let's say, at least in its initial phase. Of course, we can easily imagine that if communists have been able to take power with the elections, they would have tried to change the constitution more in their favor. Again, the constitution was the product of a compromise between very different forces. So clearly the communists had to, I mean, recognize uh, a lot of its passages uh, to other uh, political forces. And then finally, uh, this uh, elaboration sort of remains the center. I mean, it is what distinguishes basically the, com the Italian Communist Party from almost any other communist party in the world. Those who claim in Italy that we should fear uh, the Italian communists uh, uh, most of the time have a naive uh, idea of what the Communist Party was. Of course, those that are at the left of the Italian Communist Party claimed that it never really was a Communist Party. It was closer to socialism in the Italian sense or to social democracy. Anyway, we had a Socialist Party, of course, and also a, so a social democratic one that was uh, a result of a division inside the Socialist Party. And the social democrat one was even more center oriented than the socialist one. 
in particular, a lot of uh, criticism coming from more left-wing communists is exactly on the figure of Berlinguer. Because even though Berlinguer said that in, he didn't want to die social democrat, for someone, uh, this is actually what he ended up doing. Uh, because, of course, uh, through time, he relaxed the, uh, the relationship with Soviet Russia. He said something positive about NATO, about uh, Europe, about being allied of the West, allies of the West and not of the East, etc., etc. But again, as I was saying before, this reflected partially some confusion because uh, clearly, again, after, the, after the, the fall of the historical compromise, uh, the strategy, the Communist Party was left without a strategy. The only thing they could advocate for was the moral issue. The moral issue meant very simply that it was well known to anyone that uh, Italian parties uh, were doing illegal practices, also in terms of funding. That is, uh, uh, for example, in, uh, at the local level, they were able to extract money by public procurement. And uh, not even a law approving the public financing of parties in 1974 was actually able to solve the problem. This, is, this was the problem that partially still continues nowadays, but that eventually resulted in the season of the judges that we see in Italy between 1992 and 1993. The moral issue of Berlinguer was exactly the idea that we as communists are pure, let's say, but it wasn't really put in this naive way. The idea is that there is a lack of morality in the political class. That was more or less uh, the judgment of Berlinguer. Of course, his strategy was then to underline that the communist party was purer than other parties. It was true, even though they still received illegal funding from Russia, and nevertheless, where they had power they were able to extract some illegal funding by public procurement. Now, we should say where this illegal funding went, uh, not only for the Communist Party, but for all parties in general, because it is a, a, a usual anti-political anti claim to say that you know, this money was appropriated by leaders, by politicians, and simply disappeared. It's not completely true. The, probably the vast majority of this money went to the party itself, so constituted its reserves. The Communist Party and also the Christian Democrat, the Socialist ones, had current accounts also in countries outside of Italy where they used to store this money. So the idea is we steal, because technically that's stealing, it's illegal funding, first for the party, then of course if something is left, for ourselves. Okay, this is the, the Italian way, sort of, okay. So this was accepted. Of course, in this uh, frangent, the uh, Communist Party was the purest party, but again, uh, because it was never able to achieve power at the national level. So it never entered into particular mechanisms. Again, at the regional level where they had power, they were able a little bit to extract resources. Now, uh, the 80s, particularly with the rise of uh, uh, Craxi 
and the death of Berlinguer, because Berlinguer dies in 1984 while he's still the chairman. He dies after a, a public speech in a, in, a, in a terrible circumstance. You can still find the speech on the net. It was held in Padova, if I remember correctly, in June 1984. Basically, um, Berlinguer had a, an ictus, so, you know, a, a brain failure uh, while uh, an aneurysm, yeah. an aneurysm, exactly. an aneurysm, yeah. So you already see that during the last part of his speech, he's literally fainting, and people from the crowd understood that something was not uh, was not going all right, and they repeatedly said, "Stop, Enrico, stop," as saying, uh, "You know, you have done enough." And he basically later fell into a coma when he was brought back to his hotel and then he never regained consciousness. It was a, a terrible tragedy. Also consider that at the time, the Socialist Party, its attitude towards the Communist Party until the late 70s, even though uh, they were in the government and the, so and the Communists were not, was of being uh, uh, you know, subjugated also in terms of political power, in terms of percentage by the Communist Party. When Craxi started to gain power and became, along with the chairman, also the, the leader, the embodiment of the Socialist Party, he became a really aggressive campaign against the Communist Party. It was a two-sided campaign because on the other side, the Communist Party at a certain point developed a sort of irrational hatred, uh, well, irrational, to some extent irrational hatred against the Socialist Party, claiming, for example, that since they were becoming the party of the Yuppies, we would say nowadays almost a neoliberal party, although this definition is not completely correct for the Socialist Party, they were the embodiment of the new right. They used exactly this expression. No? The Socialist Party is the new right, which to some extent is true. But this allowed Craxi to have some power. Craxi was more modern than Berlinguer. I mean, there is no way to debate it, which is why he was able to have more power than Berlinguer as a result. Of course, then, Berlinguer, again, dramatically died in 84, but he left a party which was gradually decreasing in terms of uh, electoral results. The, the party never recovered to its 1976 results. Basically. The party was declining again because the strategy no, was not clear and also because in Italy we were having a change of mindset in Italy. Change of mindset, not only because Reagan and Thatcher were doing what they were doing, because in Italy, I mean, the real uh, season of neoliberalism came with the fall of the Berlin Wall, probably, but also because the political system was decaying, meaning that parties after the 70s, although they could claim some results, for example, having stopped terrorism, having secured Italy, and some minor economic results, uh, they were more or less decaying. They were losing the trust of people. This is exactly the period, the 80s, in which we see the rise of Liga Veneta, which would later become Liga Nord. All these movements that have a basic anti-political nature inside, again, populist in the good, in populist, I mean, in the, in, the, in the right sense, okay, 
so that they were anti-political, they were, they were against the politicians in Rome, they were against Southern Italy, because according to them, all the inefficiencies of the state uh, were done in favor of people in the South, which, okay, I mean, it's something completely deranged, of course. But uh, these uh, narrations contributed to increase uh, the crisis of the political system. Basically, one may say that starting with the 80s, parties uh, literally stopped to represent people. And this is, of course, a tragedy because our republic was built on parties. You know? According to a nice formula that I always like to quote made by Togliatti, uh, parties are democracy in progress. And clearly, if parties uh, are not anymore developing, but they are actually losing, democracy is losing as a whole. And also, you know, right. the media and the economic system in Italy started to see what was the future. The future was that these parties would have collapsed sooner or later. The media party, once the first scandals started to grow out in the late 80s, uh, because that the socialists uh, used to steal money was well known. Remember Beppe Grillo. Beppe Grillo is the founder of the Five Star Movement in Italy, but uh, his most famous act was that he was exiled from public television because in, 80, in 86, I think, and if it's not 86, it's 87, he did, he made a famous joke on a TV program uh, on Rai, so on the National Broadcast Service, that was uh, Craxi is talking with Martelli, another socialist. Um, Martelli was basically the dolphin of Craxi, so another member of the, of the Socialist Party. And he was saying, um, uh, Martelli said, um, yeah, Martelli said, oh, Craxi, I know, I went to China and they are all socialists there. And Craxi said, are you sure? But if they are all socialists, where do they steal from? Any, it, it was a, a, a pretty terrible joke, but anyway, Beppe Grillo was basically exiled. And it got, it got him kicked off TV for, yeah, for exactly, making that joke. Exactly, he was kicked off. So anyway, the rumors that something was happening so that there were illegal fundings, of course, were presented. Of course, the, the mediatic system speculated on this. For example, talk show in Italy, instead of political tribunes, started to emerge exactly in this context. These talk shows generally were done like at 9 p.m., so in prima serata, first evening, as we call it, were generally really sensational because they used to push cases that most of the time resolved into nothing. But nevertheless, again, they contributed to decrease the level of trust of people. And so finally we arrive to the end. Okay. So to the end of the First Republic means meaning that parties start to collapse. The first one that actually changed his name is exactly the Communist Party, because the fall of the Communist Party clearly coincides with the fall uh, of the Berlin Wall in 1989. I mean, uh, already. Uh, I think that the, the, the famous process of change of the Communist Party into the Democratic Party of the Left was done in 1991, if I'm not mistaken. This party, uh, again, had a vagus identity, as I was saying before. They were 
They were not socialist in the Italian sense because they didn't like that term. But they were not even social democrats because they still recall the Berlinguer saying, uh, I don't want to die as a social democrat. But they were not even more anymore communists. And also they started to do something that already the late communist party did when it was completely deranged. So after the death of Berlinguer, that is advocating for some change emerging from the civil society. So from the citizens living outside of politics. This is an ongoing type of narration going on in Italy because you basically assume that the population is better than those who rule the population. Wait a second. Ciao. Uh, Buonanotte. Ciao. Good. Okay. Saying good Yeah. And so uh, the situation is that uh, the all these new parties that started to emerge generally advocated for a change coming from, you know, the civil society. So from normal population, uh, professional, entrepreneurs, uh, workers, whatever. It was like uh, when uh, um, Cicerone, in one of his uh, old works, uh, referred to the so-called boni. What are, uh, who are the boni? Boni are the good part of society that needs to emerge because again, it's the good part of society. So it should rule because it's the good part. But also this after all contributed even less to actually produce a decay in Italian politics. Uh, because again, this fable that uh, the society is better than the politicians, of course it's, uh, I mean, completely false. Parts of society, not all of course, so not workers lived on the shoulders of politicians consider the economic and the financial system. I mean, in Italy, you had the state-owned enterprises or private enterprises that were founded with state money. So still, a lot of industrial groups were actually helped by the, by the Italian society, after all, because this is our money, technically, or by the state. Again, this proves that uh, Gramsci was correct in saying that when we talk of respublica, which means public thing, something that belongs to everyone, we only use it to socialize losses and privatize uh, profits, basically. I mean, using public debt as a way to helping private uh, enterprises that otherwise will be driven out of the market that are non-efficient, that just exist to increase the profits of the owners, uh, clearly is... Uh, is a good example of this. So Gramsci, even a hundred years later, was completely correct. And then finally, uh, I mean, after the Democratic Party of the left, we have uh, a new embodiment, which arises in 1998, which is uh, the um, left Democrat, Democrats, it's called, because it's uh, Democratic di Sinistra, yes. Later on, this... Um, uh, party basically is always in a coalition with the uh, and named Ulivo, which means uh, olive tree, uh, with the left parts, with the left souls of the, of the old Christian Democratic Party. Finally, we do, in, we do, they do, I should say, in 2007, what uh, should have been done 10 years before, probably. So they create a single group, a single center-left party, and they call it Democratic Party. Now, why do I say that they should have done it 10 years before? Because such a party would have been perfect during the First Republic. 
because in the, during the end of the First Republic, because at the beginning of the second, we had a majoritarian electoral rule. And then a perfect bipolarism, because we had Berlusconi on the other side and Prodi Dalema on the other one. If you do, if you had done such a party, again, the Democratic Party at those times, you would have easily won because you would have done an operation like Blair, basically. While we, this, we they decided to make this party in 2007, which was already a time in which uh, the, the Second Republic was declining. The crisis was approaching by after 2008. I mean, the, the ending point was 2011, 2012 with the sovereign debt crisis in Europe. And then the last Berlusconi government fell. We had the first technical government of Monti. It was not the first in uh, Italian history. We already had a technical government of Amato exactly uh, by the end of the, sec of the First Republic, between the First and the Second Republic, we had a technical government. Um, first, uh, again, by, oh, sorry, yeah, by Amato, and also more, even more technical, the one by Ciampi, which lasted like 10 months and came before uh, the government of Berlusconi, the first government of Berlusconi. Then we had the Monti government uh, with all of the following happening, Renzi Gentiloni, and then now we are to recent times in which we are back with a technical government, which is the one by Draghi. So one may say that also the Third Republic, which is probably the one that emerged in 2018 with the new uh, characters of uh, Lega per Salvini Premier and the Five Star Movement, has already declined. Because here what happens is that every time you have technical government, a phase gets closed. We will see what we have next, probably nuclear annihilation uh, thanks to the Ukrainian-Russian war. Inshallah. We can only pray that that will be the outcome for Italy. Yeah, as a yeah. and also um, something, okay, outside of the, of the, so I mean, you can even stop recording. The, um, this is something nice. Um, in all the Soviet strategy plans in case of nuclear war against Italy, only one bomb would have been dropped in Italy, and it would have been dropped in Padova, which is, I which mean, is not far uh, from Vicenza, not, because still I have a lot of things going there. Right. Well, my dad told me stories about growing up and when Chernobyl exploded when he was in, in Vicenza. He, I, I remember telling you about his experience of having to deal with the agriculture and, and how exactly. it yeah, they afterwards. Yes. They told people not to consume milk and related products for a while. Yes, yes. And in case a bomb is dropped on Padova, the fallout strike will be a sort of vertical line, basically reaching Tuscany, but uh, crossing, assuming that it crosses the Apennines, so the mountains in the center of Italy. So, I mean, most of the northern part would remain unaffected. Milan, nothing would happen to Milan, unfortunately. <laughs> nothing happens to Milan. Nothing it happen. remains, unfortunately, uh, hell yeah. on earth remains. Uh, well, I just want to say thank you for, for taking so much time out of your day and, and for giving such a comprehensive explanation, really, of a lot of Italian history from the end of World War II to now. So. Whenever you're free again, we'll, we'll do a, a second part. I'm hoping that Geronimo or somebody else in the group will be able to join and then we can have a more in-depth discussion about 
all of the features of the Gladio operation. I especially yes. want to talk about the abduction yes. of, of I will more. study more the reports, yes. Excellent, excellent. Well, yeah, thanks so much, do, Because uh, now I have the exams until the 18th of March. So the week after, we can do something. Perfect. All right. Well, thanks so much and uh, have a good night and, and good luck with the exams. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Good Bye. night. Bye. Good night. <laughs> Bye.